0: What's happening, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Rapping with Reefum. I'm your host Keith Merkelhammer. So, on tonight's live stream, I welcome Taras Pleskin from Top Shelf Aquatics. What's happening, there, Taras?
1: I'm doing fine. Just uh, got out of the farm, and I'm ready to talk about critters. Cool,
0: man. Yeah, we were just talking before the uh, the stream. You uh, you are quite quite the Critter guy, so we'll uh, we'll dive into a lot of uh, that stuff in detail. Just a little background on Taras. He studied aquaculture at the University of Rhode Island and the University of Florida. He specializes in the cultivation of microalgae. Taras has worked and trained at various agriculture facilities worldwide. He is currently is the lead phycologist. Is that how you pronounce that?
1: I'm an algae guy.
0: <laughs> at, Got to own up to it. At, at Top Shelf Aquatics, working towards the application of microalgae in the reef aquarium industry. So, before we start chatting with Taras, I want to thank the sponsors for this show, both Bulk Reef Supply and Ecotech Marine. Really appreciate them supporting the live stream. And we also always appreciate all you folks out there tuning in. Please spread the word, hit that like button so more people can find the live stream. And while you're at it if you haven't already done so it'd be awesome if you subscribe to the channel so as always encourage everybody to drop some comments and questions in the chat we will do our best to work them in so Taras, what exactly is a uh, a phycologist what's that uh, what's that term mean I, I i i got i got a i got a decent understanding what it's all about i mean uh, I'm i'm drawing the parallels between phytoplankton and a, a psychologist so there's some sort of crossover there
1: well a psychologist refers to anyone who studies algae now algae just like coral or fish is uh, just a term of convenience it refers to a wide range of organisms that have uh, collective traits i guess so a phycologist could be for instance someone that studies like cyanobacteria growing in a pool outside of a volcanic eruption it uh, can also be uh, technically seaweed is algae. So it could be someone that's studying uh, seaweed for industrial application in the biomedical industry or someone that's trying to grow a bunch of and ficus in the Philippines. Um, I specifically um, and a microalgae specialist, a uh, phycologist. and I guess uh, technically I'm not a research scientist. And I really wouldn't claim to be. Um, what I am is an aquaculturist that, that, that focuses on the selective cultivation of specific algae strains, uh, specifically a couple that uh, I've selected, and that have been, um, well, the ones that have been most commonly used for uh, supporting aquaculture in the 20th century. Got you. So, so specific. Go ahead. Yeah. So, phycologist. Uh, it just means algae. Specifically, I grow algae for aquaculture. That is that is my specific niche into that.
0: All right. So you're not a shrink for uh, microalgae. You're, uh, you're a person that studies it and, um, tries to understand ways to uh, help benefit the, um, the animals in terms of, I guess, consuming that stuff.
1: Yes. Yeah. And that's, um, that's the kind of the funnest part I think about, uh, commercial, uh, algae production of any kind. All right. So you got to stop to think, um, a lot of organisms that we grow for instance you know we can have like a catfish catfish can be either like put in a tank as an ornamental or consumed as like a food animal right uh same thing for the microalgae we're we're making essentially we're cultivating very 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 small cells just like you know someone cultivating uh, yeast to make beer and we're trying to use that cell and its abilities and its potential to make a product. Now, in this case, it's just to make a bunch of, uh, you know, living algae cells with specific nutrition that we can then feed to a bunch of larvae or corals or filter feeders, et cetera. But, um, you know, the same properties, like what I studied uh, formally at university, um, can be used, uh, switched over to an industrial scale. So really quick, uh, a very important example is golden fats. I named my T. isocrysis golden fats. A golden fat, it's essentially just a, a polyunsaturated fatty acid. It's like a really high quality <laughs> fat, like, uh, think like, you know, uh, you have butter. It's like very, very viscous at room temperature. It's very thick. It's not very energy efficient. And then you have like olive oil. This is even more viscous and, 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 and liquid at room temperature. So the same golden fats that the microalgae produce. You have to go through the same process of selectively, you know, producing this, the selecting what algae you want to grow and then the the ways that you want to grow it. So it's essentially a factory making that product, the golden fat, the golden fat can either be just fed out in that isocrysis cell to a coral or a oyster larvae, or it can be extracted directly and then used to make, you know, essentially what people might take as like a krill or salmon oil supplement. Um, and then, you know, there are other crazy things that can be done with that raw material. So essentially what I focus on is we identify what the organisms need and then we try and make an algae cell that, um, kind of creates that complement that need. Gotcha.
0: How, so how did you get into all this stuff, man? How did you, how did you, um, narrow down to that? Uh, it's a very specific thing, right? In terms of that, uh, a, a psychologist. So how, how, did, how did you, uh, how did your interest in that develop and how did you, uh, land at TSA?
1: Well, um, back at the University of Rhode Island, we had a great uh, curriculum when it came to learning the history of aquaculture and all the things that could happen. We had very little, if nothing, practical. Like uh, we couldn't even have the the the, the on the boots on the ground know how to breed danios, zebra zebra yeah. danios. Um, so when it came to actual physical projects that you could be a part of, where you're actually dealing with an organism and testing out some of these theories, it was very 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 thin. So. They basically had a couple of us and they were like you you get the trout you get the tuna you get the mahi you get the salmon you get the uh, uh there's what tilapia uh, uh shrimp larvae and then me they were like you get the flask <laughs> flask oh like, yeah i get the bacteria in the flask right? okay so i got this like little flask of uh pavlova pinguis and I remember I was like, all right, well, I was, I was like, I want to do hatchery stuff and larvae stuff because I was like, all right, well, that's cool. I guess we'll get to know how to do that. <laughs> and from that one flask I made, I made jugs. I made, uh, I made, you could take that one little, you know, drop of liquid and then you could, you could, you could fill it with everything. There was a magic aspect to that. Um, and then I, you know, did a bunch of other stuff. I grew copepods pods and artemia for my first job after college. But then uh, my second major job that I got was uh, oyster hatchery. Um, rather there was an abandoned building and, uh, they more or less wanted me to start growing algae in it for oysters. Yep. So I had to, um, you know, I had some, I, I did some training with other oyster hatchery people. And then I, um, I basically had to learn how to grow this stuff. Um, not only is like, a, Oh, isn't this fun? I can do this and that, <laughs> but now it's like, we need, we need gallons of it daily. And like, cause these oysters, they suck it down and there's a very short window to grow the oysters. So that was kind of my wake-up call into what commercial op culture was, where you're trying to learn stuff at like 2 a.m. because you you need to have it work. <laughs> if it doesn't work, you are screwed tomorrow. There's no food animals, for the land. Animals are depending They're on food. it, right? Yes. So you you have to think in a different way. And these things live – wait for it. An algae cell was born and died over a TSA. <laughs> like they live and die in ways that are very different than us. So you have to think very differently when you're trying to understand them. So, 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 working at a few oyster hatcheries really got me. Um, you know, that became the drive where it's like you need to make you need to make this much tetraselmus, you need to make isocrysis, you need to make Cetosiris. It cannot have bacteria. It can't have ciliates. It's got to be clean. You need to have it every day, um, and you need to have gallons and gallons and gallons and gallons of it. So uh, yeah, that's um that kind of. It's a lot of pressure you know, after a couple of years of that. It became, um, you know, everything I did became kind of under that microbial context.
0: So who, I mean, who taught, I mean, did you basically learn this stuff through your studies at the universities? I mean, or did you have a mentor when you came into the, uh, the oyster factory?
1: I did. A, I did have a mentor, um, that ran the, the, the mother hatchery and then we were starting kind of like a, a rough pilot. Um, so I, I learned a lot of practical stuff, um, from them. Um, when it came to like basic training, though, and just being able to be like, okay, like um, I have this, I have that, and then being able to have the tools to research and learn everything, that was pretty much my formal training at URI. Plus, my sophomore year, I made the best decision I ever did academically. I went to the Philippines mm. for first like three weeks. My professor took us and we went to the Philippines. And in the Philippines, they aquaculture is not like this ooh trendy fun new thing. We're gonna grow some fish. It's like the way we look at corn, soybean, cow, chicken, and pig farming in this country. Every single Filipino house has a fish pond, a shrimp pond. Their 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 ability to domesticate and and produce with their coast because they don't have like the continent that we do. So aquaculture there. Um, the things that um you know some of these some of these Filipino farmers can do, um, you know, just the ones that have learned through like traditional leanings, they don't have much, much like tr- uh, formal education. They can do things that uh, it, it could take PhDs here, years to do hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars, and they would just- uh, And they could all do it to,
0: like, in a sterilized environment. I mean, I mean, that's a big part of this whole thing, right? Is like well, you can't
1: well, contaminate
0: your cultures.
1: Well, yes, and well, yes, and no. So, um, so I, I went there. I went to the Philippines, and then I ended up meeting my my sensei, uh, Joebert Toledo. He was running this uh, R and D for a huge fish factory. So he had kind of like the instincts of the Filipino, mixed in with the formal training of of of, of he went to Hiroshima University. So the Japanese are like ultra frontier yeah. aquaculture tech. So he was able to show me so much when it came to what you need to keep sterile, what needs to be approached scientifically, meth me- methodologic, you know, systematically. Uh, combined with what needs to be felt out what needs to be natural what you need to actually just you know people that there's no excuse for just time you've spent with an organism you get the gut feeling for what makes it live what makes it thrive how to how to make it work and so a lot of the training i got when it came to microalgae and how to really really learn how to adapt and and really try and figure out new organisms and try and uh yeah that was that was a lot of the training uh from the philippines because uh they they thousands of species they mariculture and um,
0: nothing like getting that that's... hands-on experience oh there was nothing like
1: it yeah um yeah that was that was incredible um and then i had a few other trainings in microalgae so uh i've had a lot of trainings along the way but so uh, another institution I, I i would be remiss to not mention would be the the NOAA laboratory in milford connecticut mm-hmm. and gary wickfors and lisa guy uh they're the ones that hold the algae workshop um every couple of years and uh you know, register with them ahead of time, you can actually go there and receive free training. And their course their course is very, very, very intense. It won't necessarily get you ready for, you know, the whole perils of the day-to-day um, algae production, but the ability of them to uh, to get everyone caught up in three days if you don't know uh, much beforehand is incredible. And they, of course, uh, act as a functional library of all of our stock cultures that I, that I receive and that uh, through me, everyone else that buys TSA FIDO. So they, they actually keep a library of all these different species, thousands of species. And then if you know which one you, you want, you can um, contact them if you, you know who to contact. And uh, you get very sterile stocks, which is very key to this stuff. So,
0: all right. How did you uh, how did you end up at TSA, man? How did that
1: all happen? Um, so I was working at a few LFS stores. I was working at ocean state aquatics in Coventry. I was having a fun time servicing, learning about the, that's in Rhode the- Island, right? Yeah. in Coventry, uh, Rhode Island, um, I was having a great time mm-hmm. there. I was learning about the reef industry, um, really wanted to start producing things again, though. Really wanted to start aquaculturing again. Um, and then I was, I was working there. Um, and then my girlfriend, um, happened to have gotten a job at SeaWorld with the orcas, which had been her, her long dream. Um, so we both agreed that if she got that gig, we would kind of, uh, pack up our bags and head South and that's what we did. So, uh, yeah, we got, we got here and then, um, I had to figure out a job and then, um, I, I contacted Steven and then Steven, uh, hooked me up with Kevin and then we had our interview and the rest is history. And, uh, yeah, I've, uh, basically walked in there and, uh, I knew, I knew instantly that, uh, you know, all my other gigs in the past were abandoned rooms. I worked with maybe one other person. They were usually <laughs> uh, not formally trained and sometimes stubborn. But at TSA, the farm, it was everything was perfect. The staff worked together. You walk in immediately, and it's almost like a, it's almost like a military base. Everyone's like moving around doing their thing. I was in love immediately. So um, when they contacted me and said they were interested in having me be part of the team, I was I was so thrilled and. Uh, yeah, you know, I was so thrilled. I was like, "Look, uh, you want to get coat pods and algae going? Give me a month, and you know, hundred bucks in spots." So
0: they they didn't have any live feeds really going for their systems until you got there.
1: Um, no, not really. Uh, the two things about TSA, uh, it, the facility is is just got so much going on. It has got so much going on per square inch that there there is no bandwidth for people to have uh, you know any mass expansions unless they're very very comfortable. You know, everyone is is so. So entrenched keeping their like, keeping everything going all the time. So uh, I think it was very uh, I think they were they love to have someone that was very passionate and very eager to go on projects that otherwise would have kind of a considerable learning curve. Um, yeah, so so you you, luck-
0: you, you you have taken it to a whole nother level, I guess is what you're saying.
1: Well, I've I've, I've given them the the, the tools to kind of, uh, well, I've given them another couple set of tools in their toolbox. So now we can make copepods, we can make uh, algae, and then when you can make those two things and you can make rotifers, you make those three things, you can make any kind of larvae you want. Um, But as far as, uh, you know, any good coral farm operating is going to have to feed those tanks if you're trying to maximize your production. And uh, food and electricity and labor are the three major costs of any aquaculture operation. So, um, being able to produce your own food and find ways to mitigate, um, you know, buying products, uh, is a, is a, I think it was good. Also, you know, because we're TSA and we're also have all this retail infrastructure. Um, we could also enjoy being able to, uh, you know, share the feed that we trusted to go in our tanks. And- so, all right. So
0: you guys basically are, um, producing three types of live feeds at this point in time for your systems. You, you mentioned, uh, um, phytoplankton rotifers mm-hmm. and, and, uh, copepods. Is that, those are the mm-hmm. three main feeds that you guys are, um, um, culturing, raising, feeding the system. Do you guys also sell that stuff to, uh,
1: hobbyists? We sell all three. Um, Fido is the one that is probably the most routinely used as a daily, daily fed out to the tanks. You know, the various species of phyto we grow, the Rhodomonas the red, the Isocrisis, the gold, and the, the Tetraselmus, the green, those get fed out. Um, and that, is accordance to our daily water testing and the kind of the needs that we want per system. Um, the rotifers and the copepods are really something that we'll use more uh, strategically in tanks that, you know, let's say we're dealing with a particular pest and we have to run uh, interceptor, something that's going to be destroying uh, a large part of that microcrustacean cleanup crew. You know, in order to get our systems running again or like preferentially having isolated systems that we're doing treatments in, we want to be able to get these systems back up and running. And uh, being able to dose Coke pods, you know, a couple gallons at two to three per milliliter is a good way to get that up and running uh, and buying back some precious time. So
0: um,
1: in terms of Fido.
0: Yes. So my understanding is that there are different would you say species of uh, phytoplankton different uh, types of phytoplankton that can be uh, cultured yes. and raised? Um, what do you guys use for your,
1: um, systems and why are you using it? Okay. A great question. So, um, again, algae specifically, microalgae, especially, um, is a term of convenience. So it's like, you know, even more a red algae cell and a green algae cell are far more estranged from each other uh, than let's say a flatworm is from you and I. They are they're very, very, very distantly. So every single shape and color of algae has its own nutritional profile and um, everything. So when you're trying to select what you want for let's say the reef aquarium industry, yeah. you're gonna wanna establish a few criteria. One. Um, it's going to want to survive in salt water because, you know, we can't be dosing, you know, there's no real way to isolate the algae from the water itself. So we don't want to be dosing, let's say a bunch of fresh water. So things like chlorella, spirulina, these are out. These are freshwater water algaes. We want marine algaes. Um, uh, secondly, is that we want them to be making things that we know are nutritionally good for the corals. So when you get any good food, mysis shrimp or, or any good flake, the first ingredient should be um, some form of marine protein, cuttlefish meal, soybean, I mean, uh, krill meal, salmon, whole salmon, something like that. And the point of that, that marine protein is because it has those golden fats. That's the really expensive part that people pay for. And because saltwater organisms live in saltwater, they can't live without those fats. So we want every algae we grow to have those nice big fats. Um, So we want them to be able to live in saltwater and then we want them to be good nutritionally. So for that reason, I've selected three microalgae species that are commonly applied to marine aquacultures. These have been commonly used to grow and raise filter feeding organisms like oysters and scallops. Um, And they've also been used to feed very, very tiny larvae successfully, which need these things. So we pick species that have lots of scientific literature behind them so that we know what we're dealing with. And then we have the NOAA lab to provide the stocks so that we know that we actually got what's in the paper. That part is so important because otherwise you're just growing a bunch of green water, Mm. which could be not perfect, but it could also be bad because some algae like red tide produce toxins. Some algae like pest algae are really hard to digest. They build up and make the tank look really ugly. Mm. Some algae uh, can actually change the water chemistry so they can uh, actually steal vitamins and other nutrients away from corals make them in a less biologically available form for those things. So we want to be specific about what we're making. So for that reason, i picked three species that are commonly used knock culture. The first is T. Isochrysis lutea. It's essentially like a little golden nugget, and its job is basically just to make those golden fats. And when the cultures get really dark and they kind of look like chocolate milk, um, that means that the T. Isochrysis has maybe six million of them in every milliliter, and that's crowded. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, man, it's crowded. We can't possibly grow anymore. <laughs> So they stockpile fats are like, "Oh, we're going to some the calamity might come soon. It's too many of us. <laughs> so they have the ability just to stockpile all the fats. So their job is just to be like this big stockpile of fats. They're relatively defenseless. They can't swim very fast. You put them in the tank, corals, filter feeders, anything is going to be able to hit them pretty much immediately. Get the fats in. Tetraselmus, very different. It's a green algae, marine algae, um, will survive in the tank, but it's a lot bigger and it's faster than T. Icycrisis. So it'll survive for a little longer in the aquarium. And when it gets scared, like when there's a lot of light, like way too much light for it, probably like what a reef tank is gonna expose it to, it settles, like makes like a little thin, not really like firm attached, but it just attaches to a substrate when it gets scared. And that makes it really available to snails and urchins and a lot of the other stuff that you probably wanna be supporting and that might not get enough forage in a really well aged, really nutrient low uh, reef tank. So, being able to supplement grazers and stuff like that, very important, tetracellmus. Um, but a lot of green algaes don't necessarily have good fats. Tetraselmis does. Some green algaes, uh, like nanocloropsis, have very, very thick, indigestible cell walls. Tetracellmus really does not. Um, so, tetracellmus is a nice way of being able to get the positive aspects of green water, quote-unquote, um, while also getting some of the better benefits uh, from the T. isocrysis. And they also make some cholesterols that the isocrysis doesn't make that critters do need as well. Thirdly is rhodomonas. This is the one I know the least about, but I've I've had wonderful time the last three years really digging my teeth into this one. This is the one that is red, and it's it's the actual color itself, not just because red looks cool and love the contrast, but that red is phycorethrin and other pigments, which are essentially, you know, we know the green pigment that the, the algae use to gather sunlight, but the red itself, um, what pigments are is because they let cells photosynthesize, they absorb light, um, which is cool. But it also, what is that? It's a battery, right? Because you're taking energy and you're storing it. So when organisms eat these pigments, like when we eat a really, really red astaxanthin rich salmon filet, um, those pigments don't get broken down. We don't burn them for energy. They actually get fused into our own fat cells. So the pigments that that algae is making will continue to transcend, um, albeit it'll slowly get less concentrated over time, but it will enter the fat of any copepod or anything that eats that. And any fish that eats that copepod will get that color. And that's why we see some of the coolest colors in nature. Like when you catch a fish out of a really, really, really good looking stream or river. It's lit up with colors. These are all the pigments mm. in all the algae that, from that water that has slowly been incorporating into the fat of that animal. So for Rodomonas, we're trying to grow that pigment. The pigment that is uh, one uh, shows all that vibrant color and could perhaps be the building block and uh, enhance it in various organisms. Um, and then two, um, that battery, because it stores energy, pigments. When they're store, the reason we put them into the fat of organisms in general is because they're really good at uh, basically buffering digestion. When we, we when we eat things, we get inflammation. Everyone knows that you get bloat, you get like especially when you eat like a pound of butter. It's because there's <laughs> inflammation, which is actually a specific term that means like electrons have been coming off of a reaction, like spare, like sparks in a fuse box. And eventually if you get enough sparks going off, like something breaks. So if you have a bunch of batteries in the fat of the organisms, they absorb the sparks. Um, the third thing pigments do when they're fused into the fat of organisms is because of that, again, capacity of energy, they allow oxygen to be trans transported. They can store and disperse oxygen. So when you see fish have like crazy colorations around their eyes or crazy colorations around any particular organ that because there's a myriad of potential reasons, but there is definitely enhanced oxygen transport occurring around those sites of intense coloration. So colors don't only look cool; they're functional. Um, so that's the part that I love because Rhodomonas gives us the potential to really dose and crank up that 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 building that building block of that uh, that, that that color.
0: So you guys are culturing and dosing three types of phyto at TSA. Yes. So if um, and this kind of um, goes to the question that uh, Andy Balma has which is uh, what is the role of phyto in an SPS system? My question um, is is similar, I think. But um, if you had to pick one of those uh, phytoplankton to culture and dose in your home aquarium, if it was an SPS-dominant system,
1: which one would that be? Um so my answer is twofold. Uh, one is that I've chosen those three species because they are relatively complementary in nutritional profile. So if possible, I would suggest a less uh cutting whatever dosage you were going to do of one and instead combine all three um because each one does com- com- complement each other nutritionally. The cholesterols found in the Tetraselmis are not found in the exocrises. So that would be my 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 nutritional answer. Um, when the question says to grow at home in dose in the aquarium, right? If you can only grow one species, if you only have the equipment set up it, for
0: one species of phyto
1: 100%, I would rec- recommend the green, the Tetrasomus chui, the green is infinitely more forgiving, both in terms of contamination, in terms of conditions that it will live at. Um, it will be very, very kind to a, a first time algae grower. Uh, once you get really confident with the green and if you want to try the others, you know they have a lot of tricks, and they can also kind of betray you last minute. <laughs> um, the green is very, very effective. And if you can get green going for a couple cultures in a row and and transfer those because you know every time you transfer a culture, it gets more and more uh, adapted to your conditions because all the old cells that didn't that died and the ones that succeeded had babies. Right. Um, so I would recommend green across the board. Uh, um go ahead. And then uh, to translate that into how it would be useful specifically for an SPS, SPS systems, uh, to my knowledge, often kind of run the risk. If you're really on top of your nutrients, you can often bottom out, especially if you have very active colony growth. So being able to dose nutrients is an increasing trend. um, But instead of dosing sodium nitrate, I would strongly encourage dosing a much smaller amount of, let's say, bioactive nutrients in the terms of algae. It's a way of bringing your nutrients up in a controlled way that's not just dissipating into the water, but actually being introduced through the context of all this different nutrition. And these algae cells are actually living up until the point that they're consumed. Um, So I think there's an additional benefit to that um, as a, a kind of a bioactive way of nutrient dosing. In addition, if you're trying to get rid of nutrients, when you have just dissolved nutrients in the water, your skimmer cannot just pick them up. Once they are packaged and enveloped, if you will, inside of a bacterial cell or an algae cell, they can be picked up by a skimmer. So if you crank your skimmer and you do very controlled phytodosing, you can provide conditions that the, the phyto and other plankton suck up the, the, the uncatchable nutrients and then allow your skimmer to suck them up. And then you have a way of exporting that
0: so if if you're uh, if you're doing what you're saying there in terms of um, operating the skimmer in, in that way, then dosing phyto could potentially be a way of helping to reduce nutrients.
1: yes, if if, if specifically with the green, I think that would be the most most applicable uh, by far. Um, and then especially for the SBS Aquarium, because they run such tight controlled nutrients and again run the risk of potentially bottoming out, Um, Everyone wants to keep their cleanup crew longer, they don't want to keep buying cleanup crew and then having to go through the associated potential introduction of whatever's coming in on that new cleanup crew. Uh, You want to be able to find a way to feed those organisms, you know, people want to keep clams, people want to keep sibellid worms, people want to keep non photosynthetic corals Algae is a way that you can give it food. You can nutrient dose and you can you can give them food. They eat this at the same time without actually having living algae cells. Many of these filter feeding organisms, they have like giant antennae on the end of those, those filtering apparatuses. And if it's not the right thing, um, they might suck it up, but they might just expel it as pseudo feces like an oyster or a clam, or they just won't pick it up altogether. Maybe like a sibelid worm or something like that.
0: Um, so Mickey Colon has a question. I saw a video that there's a specific strain of phyto that will lower phosphates. What is the name of the strain? Thanks in advance. Is that what you're talking about in terms of the green,
1: um, algae in general? Yes, but I cannot stress enough. The, the, the role of algae when it comes to lowering nutrients is because, you know, nutrients cannot either be created nor destroyed, uh, except except there's I guess, but, uh, uh, you have to find a way to to control dose the algae. so I would suggest uh, a prolonged, lower dosage and then run a skimmer accordingly so that you can you you can you can export that. Um, but specifically, he might be referring to nanocleropsis, which potentially could be um, an even superior uh, way of doing that nutrient export because of its indigestible cell wall. It won't get foraged and consumed as quickly and therefore will continue to grow and absorb more nutrients in theory i haven't done a specific experiment comparing this but again nanocaropsis has a shade of the nutritional content that tetraselmis does so you can't beat that double double feature of feeding the cleanup crew as well
0: um, so andy had a follow-up question so if you dose phyto, should you put your skimmer on a timer so i guess the the the, the question is how so you said a um a, a more controlled dose and uh the skimmer comes into play so what what would be your recommendation in terms of the protocol, in terms of dosing and operating the skimmer, UV, that sort of thing. How 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 long should those things be shut off after dosing?
1: I recommend at least like an hour or two. You shut the skimmer and the UV off. It's not It shouldn't cause any major collapses in your system for an hour or two. Um, give it a chance to circulate throughout the system. Don't just directly dump the thing you paid for into your filtering that you're also paying to run. Um, <laughs> So I would give it an hour or two. You don't have to go crazy. You know, if you're trying to do like an NPS system and you really, you know, this this feeding means a lot, maybe a much longer period, but, you know, you're probably not going to have that much intense filtration on NPS necessarily as well. Um, But for the most part, I would suggest uh, about an hour or two. Um, If you want to go a little longer, that's fine to your comfort level. Um, But for the most part, the algae doesn't get immediately sucked up by the skimmer. The UV will fry it pretty good, though. Um, if it's pumping through the system, but, but allow some sort of residency time. I mean, typically at the farm, just because we don't have all the time in the world, but we only let our tanks go pumpless, um, for feed mode for probably only 18 minutes at a time. But we also enjoy so much water volume that there's probably quite a few laps, um, that that food has before it gets actually hit by filtration. I
0: can't recall the last time I spoke to, uh, to Kevin, but do you guys run a UV 24 seven on your systems?
1: Um, not on all. I don't believe all the systems are 24 hour UV. In fact, I think a couple of them are actually UV lists at the moment. So it's, it's not something that we run. It's certainly not like we're keeping them all on 24 seven. It's very much, we turn them, um, systems that kind of have some prolonged issues that we want to control. Necessarily, how much growth is going on in the water column per se? We'll keep those going 24 7, but um, not all the systems, no.
0: Um, Polo1126, thank you so much for that super chat. Another great discussion. Keep up with the excellent guests. Thank you very much. Um, Mark Hibbard, of various green marine algae. how would you rank the species of most favorable to least in an aquarium?
1: Um, well, again, there, there are millions of, uh, of green algaes. but I'll, I'll produce a few examples. Um, when it comes to specific green algae, I would rank things, uh, like tetracelmus, um, rhodomonas, red algaes are actually pretty green, like in their own way, but uh, I would rank these as kind of a tier, they produce no negative compounds. They are rich in highly sought after and limiting nutritional compounds. They survive at reef salinity. They will survive uh, at least for limited amounts of time at reef illumination levels. Um, and they can be highly useful for cultivating a wide variety of different organisms. Like for instance, we've been dosing tetraselmus into one of our systems and have been really enjoying all the sea cucumbers spawning and increased recruitment of trochus snails as well, um, especially the sea cucumbers. It's been really cool just to be able to dose dose tetraselmus and then a couple months later, you just see recruitment of these babies popping up and then we can kind of disperse them uh, where they're needed throughout the farm. Um, Getting towards the middle ground, I would say now we're entering kind of Nanocleropsis, some of the other Tetraselmus species. Um, some These are still fine. They're not going to necessarily hurt anything, but um, you know, other tetra- Tetraselmus chui is what we grow. Specifically, it has a very refined nutritional profile. Think of it as like the difference between a wild grape and one that's been selectively uh, grown in the Napa Valley. Um, other tetraselmus species will probably be fine food. Things will eat it. Nothing bad will happen, but they haven't necessarily been cultivated to that standard. And then we enter things like nanocleropsis, where they're probably not going to crash a system, but they are highly indigestible. So, you know, don't overdose on nanocleropsis if you don't want to have green water, for instance. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of its best application is turning water actually green. Pardon me, just one second. You got, you great- got a
0: dog on a, chewing a toy there, or Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. Oh, no, there we so go. Quiet.
1: There's the call All part. Right. This is Maurice. <laughs> Maurice. Uh so nanoc nanoclo- <laughs> yeah, say hi, <laughs> Um so nanochloropsis would definitely be the middle ground um as far as uh, you know, it would be perfectly acceptable to dose, but don't overdose it because it could definitely grow a little too well in your tank. It's definitely for the sensitive aesthetics of a reef aquarium. And then we kind of enter freshwater algaes, which I really don't think have much place in the uh reef aquarium trade. Um, We hit things like chlorella, which is like nanochloropsis is like really tough freshwater cousin, like super big cell wall. Um, Chlorella would really not be a a great thing to add to the reef aquarium because you're you're adding off a lot of fresh water. It's not growing in a saltwater medium. Um, A lot of the other um, green algaes can even be uh, cyanobacteria. So not even technically microalgae Um, you know, spirulina, for instance, all these things can, uh, uh, because they live in the freshwater environments, uh, they don't necessarily have a very favorable fat profile. Things that live in freshwater don't accumulate those golden fats nearly as much as the marine environment. Um, And there's there's, there's several uh, biochemical reasons for that. So those really, by their nature, have far less beneficial qualities than positive qualities. If you're doing a freshwater tank, you know, that's way different. Or you're trying to grow some, you know, freshwater, uh, Daphne or something. That's a way different argument. Chlorella, go ahead. But for the reef aquarium trade, um, there will be a lot of drawbacks, um, for that application.
0: Taraz, can you, can you, um, uh, dig in a little bit in terms of the, the complete benefits that we would get in terms of dosing phyto to a reef tank? So, you know, I've I've heard. My understanding is that phyto um, will definitely help the um, the pod population in a reef tank. It'll it'll yes. help. It'll help. Um, they'll, they'll consume the uh, the phyto as food, and it'll help. Um, you know, that that uh, population potentially explode or at least uh, propagate pretty well. Then uh, you know, it's also my understanding that phyto um, is consumed um, a certain percentage. I guess. By corals, in terms of what they take in for uh, for food, can can you just kind of dig into the science behind the benefits um, of dosing phyto and how you know it it um, comes into play in terms of the the bottom line, I guess, in terms of that whole cycle in the reef tank, the uh, the cycle of life, and and how corals benefit.
1: So. Uh, threefold. The first is primary direct benefit of corals. There are certain corals and then certain other reef organisms that we're trying to keep, tridacian clams, electric scallops. These are all great examples. Christmas tree worms, um, the, uh, thorny oysters. These are all things that eat phytoplankton, um, that and some other coral taxa. They directly consume phyto. They are designed to be filter feeding organisms. We are not running dirty enough water tanks that they can be foraging all the time. They're not getting constant, uh, flux of marine phytoplankton from the West Indies. They are inside a a glass box. So to keep those organisms alive and happy direct feeding of phyto way to go, especially when it comes to specific strains, like for, if you're trying to keep a clam alive and healthy, you should have some sort of phyto dosing. Some people can do fine once they get bigger, and they're more dependent on photosynthesis, but early growth, early juveniles, like most people are going to be acquiring, feed that animal, please, uh, especially your electric scallops, too. Secondarily, many corals um, and other corals that uh, have larger feeding apparatuses cannot directly consume phytoplankton, but what they can consume are nauplii. they can consume possum shrimp, they can consume uh a sea urchin if it spawns, or a peppermint shrimp if it spawns, or a trochus snail if it spawns. And all this phytoplankton dosed into the tank supports all this secondary forage. Um, when I grow my copepod cultures and I really want to get them going, you know, give them about a 50 to 75 percent water change and then replace at least 25 percent of that with tetraselmis scraps, especially the, the kind of cell masses that build up on the bottom that certainly aren't sellable, but uh, are fine nonetheless, so I put them in there and that that will uh, boost the population of anything from a tisbe Benamiensis copepod um, to, you know, very, very tiny other forage. No plankton, uh will then get pulsed, fueled by the phytoplankton, and be available for any orc, coral and filter feeder that cannot eat something as small as a phytoplankton uh, cell. And then uh, the third one is a little bit, um, I don't want to comment uh, directly because I'm not sure anyone can, but there is the argument uh, certainly, we'll be working on this more specifically in the future. But uh, the corals that we grow, especially the photosynthetic ones, are not just a, a coral, as we all well know. They're they're, they're they've got dinoflagellates, zooxanthellae, symbiodinium attached to them, but they also have a great many other things: bacteria, fungi, archaea, even beneficial viruses, and they also have other algae cells other than dinoflagellates. So there is the potential um, that algae cells can also function as a probiotic in a way, where they can actually, uh, rather than just being consumed, potentially, especially things like tetracelmus, um, could live without light and just live heterotrophically inside the guts of fish and potentially even function inside the holobionts of some corals. Um, so don't want to make any claims like that. But I think there might be a, a argument for um, a different, uh, there'll be food algaes and then potentially in the future, we'll make uh, specialized strains of zooxanthellae that will uh, be uh, cultivated selectively for accommodating inside coral tissue than feeding it
0: so i you know I've, I've talked to some reefers who who were dosing live phyto and they said that um you know they didn't really see the benefits so they stopped dosing the uh, the phyto what what you know and and so i don't know exactly how long they were dosing it for i so i guess my question is you know are there any signs that you can see in your corals that they are benefiting from the dosing of the phyto, and um, how long would that take to see, you know, over how many weeks or months would it take to see those kind of physical benefits in terms of your corals, you know, looking healthier and more colorful or what have you, if those are the effects of dosing live phyto?
1: It's definitely something which is dependent on the specific taxa of coral. Uh, Our facility has a lot of different individual taxa moving around all the time. So doing specific comparisons can be a little difficult. What we have found uh, is that it's uh, a great way to raise our nutrients when we need to, when we start to bottom out. We have found that it's a wonderful appetite stimulant. So it it gets polyp extension going. It allows uh, basically to us to kind of signal that it's time to start feeding. So we um, haven't done it in isolation of our other feeds as well, but uh, it would be nice to kind of do some more isolated trials on potentially some non photosynthetic coral as well. But for the most part, when I use it in my systems, because I must, I must confess that I'm an occulturist first and potentially a reefer second, is I look for <laughs> uh, the absence or increased presence of organisms. So I have tanks that I run completely dark and dose phyto. I have tanks that I run completely dark and I don't dose phyto. I have tanks that I run light and uh, not light, et cetera. And the tanks that get dose phyto regardless are the ones that support all kinds of reproduction. They're the ones that spawn featherworms. They're the ones that spawn sea cucumbers. They're the ones that uh, spawn somatellas and trochus snails. And it's being able to recruit all this different taxa and cleanup crew that I think is the the, the the most direct, if I pointed at any direct uh, benefit to fight it. benefit I personally could stand by with my own experience is that it supports a myriad of invertebrate life in ways that potentially other inert foods simply cannot.
0: Um, what about the use of a non-live feed versus a live feed? You know, like a, I've heard of people using concentrate to, um, to dose. What, what, what are the differences between a concentrate versus a
1: live feed? So a concentrate is usually a combination of five phytospecies, um, maybe six. The isocrises that I grow, tetrasomus I grow, uh, pavlova, which is similar to the isochrises, and then a couple diatoms, so catocerous and then maybe um and then maybe Cl- nanocleropsis mm-hmm. as well. The issue is that when you combine all these species together, they simply do not store long-term together. So the, the compromise here is that we offer dead pastes that aren't alive, but they're of a higher concentration. So you just need to add less of them. So the drawbacks of this are twofold. One, the organisms that you're getting are not alive. So their nutritional profile has been compromised. They compromise the second they die um depending on how long that bottle is and how long it's been refrigerated you could be attenuating uh hemorrhaging of uh, the key things you're actually trying to pay for primarily those golden fats we talked about they're the first to go and unfortunately when a fat goes it doesn't just disappear it goes rancid and actually tor- turns poisonous so pastes in of themselves when they're sealed and capped by a proper manufacturer are fine but the second you open them they a time clock starts so that Less volume dosing for a longer period now kind of turns a little bit into a liability because any amount of time that container is open and it's not alive, all those dead cells and that slowly potentially rancifying fats, depending on the preservatives, now could potentially one, not be something you necessarily want to put in the tank, two, something you certainly don't want to overdose in the tank, you need to go very, very careful. And three, it's potentially something that could be a, a, a nasty substrate for all kinds of bacteria, potentially a pathogenic vibrios. Um, so for that good. reason, de- um, it, it, depending on the preservative, the, 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 the bottle itself might not support vibrios, but the second dose to the tank, all of its organic matter and all the things that have necessarily been kind of festering in there uh, could very well, depending on what's going on in the system itself. So at least with live phytoplankton, you can take a sample of the live culture and you can take it under a microscope and you know exactly what you're looking at. It's supposed to be tetrasalmus. Is tetrasalmus swimming around or not? There's either like worms or anything else squealing around in there or a bunch of other green cells or brown cells that don't belong. It's either tetrasalmus or it's not. So you at least have the control there. And because you have the control in a single culture, you know whether or not it's passed or not. So when you're getting a paste, Depending on how you treat it as a consumer, let alone, you know, they could do everything right as a producer, depending on how you use it as a consumer, you may be dealing with one, an inferior product, or two, Uh, you could just be growing a bunch of nanochloropsis. It's the only cell that will probably survive because of that thick cell wall. And uh, the rest of the things that are very expensive that you paid for are more or less maybe not there in the concentrations that you would like.
0: And and over time, there could be some buildup of some bad stuff that um, could produce... um some uh, un, um, unwanted uh, waste in the tank.
1: Yeah. Like for instance, when we were growing oysters, oyster larvae, um, very sensitive and it's very important to give them like baby diet, like good T. Isochrises. Uh, right, right when they're born. Uh, we tried on a few times when we were having issues with algae production. We tried to substitute it with some pastes. It's very difficult to find that that magical middle ground between not feeding your organisms enough, and the second you overdose it, you lose everything, 100% more time. Yeah. In a way that's yeah. simply not existent with with phytoplankton, because you give them a little bit of light, and they will at least locally consume the ammonia around them, as opposed to mm-hmm. delivering it in massive. Un- uncompromising waves so getting getting
0: back to the different types of phyto that uh, that you guys culture and, and and dose so you mentioned the uh the golden fats which is uh i guess it's a tougher strain to culture right because there's more involved in terms of the sterilization i guess and i guess more more things can happen in terms of crashing that kind of culture versus the green phyto which you said is a good kind of like beginner type of um phyto the dose and 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 you were also saying that the green phyto is uh, is a good beneficial phyto for like an sps dominant tank or I guess a reef tank in in uh, in general, but when you get um, when you kind of get good at the culturing of the green phyto, would you recommend if you again can only stick with one phytoplankton to culture in your um, in your home? Would you suggest trying to uh, up your game a little bit and try to culture the uh, the golden um, fat phyto?
1: You want to go gold, gold go gold. gold. I mean, but uh, if I had to shoot a couple pieces Bro. of advice right here. Um, <clears throat> gold likes blue light mm. Gold doesn't like to get too cold And it doesn't like to get too hot It wants to be about 75 The T in t isocrisis is for Tahiti It likes to be perfect all the time And it is a small You're essentially growing a microscopic chocolate chip Everything wants to eat a chocolate mm. chip Obviously the things that we're feeding it to But also like the ciliates that are literally in the air That might have, you know Been living on a water droplet that your cat coughed out <laughs> The the level of contamination that can hit isochries can be very uncompromising. Yeah. So it's very important to start off slow and contained, and then you kind of have to toughen it up a bit. So I take very I take a lot of pride at TSA because I think we have very tough T isochries. Um, I don't sell our contaminated ice crises. We feed it out when it happens. But I'm happy to say that when we get a few drops of tetraselmus, the green in there, usually the whole culture will turn green in any other facility. Ours, the green is shoved up against the side where Taras can <laughs> see it and call the culture immediately. And the rest of the culture rises as a golden <laughs> army. <laughs> so, what I'm, so I'm proud yeah, but yes, I because of its nutritional content. If you want to dose ISO and just ISO, go for it. It is the fat powerhouse. It is the it is like dosing, of like it's like jet fuel to the tank. Essentially, every organism in that tank uses. So uh, fats.
0: I mean, all right. So, what I'm getting from you is that, that I'm yeah, so yeah, sorry. Yeah, One more going. time. <laughs> Keep those questions coming, folks. I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna start getting to the questions. Uh, I'm, I'm so start. sorry hate you. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, what I'm getting is that it's experts only the uh, the golden uh, vital that uh, the golden fat fighter that, that's what it sounds like to me in terms of trying to culture that stuff.
1: I would say experts only in the same way that brewing beer is experts only. There's a learning curve. Yeah. And uh, if you're under the learning curve, you've made poison.
0: Yeah, not good.
1: What so but it's not possible to get above it. So,
0: all right, but dosing that jet fuel, right? How um, cautious do you have to be that you're not overdosing it? What, what, what effects could it have on the tank in terms of uh, nutrients? You know, I guess it's powerful stuff. So how careful do you have to be in terms of the dosage?
1: I wouldn't say uh, once you're over a hundred gallons, you don't have to be crazy cautious. There's going to be a lot of stuff in that system. That's going to absorb it unless like, you know, you're actually dosing six gallon carboys per. When you're dealing with a nano tank, go low and slow, you know, maybe add, you know, something 10 milliliters a day, 20 milliliters a day, 20 milliliters every other day. Look for the changes in your tank. Make sure that there's no ridiculous spike in nutrients or anything. See that the actual food is being processed because these are again chocolate chips. If if you're dosing a bunch of chocolate chips in your tank and they're not getting eaten pretty much completely within a few hours, something is askew. Yeah. Um, so that would be my my suggestion: go low and slow with smaller tanks. With bigger tanks, especially with T.I.C. crises, like you really you're gonna have to dose so much of the stuff to even like really darken the water. So um, you know, don't go ridiculous. But anything you know under uh, under a third of a gallon a day would be absolutely on ball fine you know you're gonna have to increase your residency time just to maximize your benefit from it you know shut those pumps off shut the skimmers off give it like an hour give it a half hour all
0: right let's get to some questions from the viewers here uh jason langer what's up there jason when is the best time of day to feed phyto any idea for amino acids as well
1: I think um, in general, uh, towards the end of your light cycle would probably be the best time. It's when your mo- most of your invertebrates are going to be out, when most of your corals are going to be exhibiting heterotrophic feeding behavior. Um, so if you had to pick a time, I would say towards the end of your light cycle would probably be fine. Um, it would be very interesting. I have not done this to compare dosing phytoplankton in the same tank <clears throat> at the day versus doing it at night. Um, When it comes to amino acids, I think there are many wonderful applications of amino acids in a reef tank. I think that there are potentially areas where the benefits of amino acids and phytoplankton overlap as far as how specific corals and other organisms could potentially uh, acquire them in ways other than feeding. Um, Because for amino acids, you can't really eat it, you have to absorb it. Um, But I think that there certainly are probably more specific advantageous avenues for amino acids versus phytoplankton in some circumstances like for instance if you're trying to if you're trying to boost a bunch of invertebrates in your tank like the direct feeding amino acids are probably not the way unless you're trying to grow a bunch of bacteria indirectly to feed all those things um, phytoplankton would be the route if you're trying to target one specific organism that can only absorb amino acids and you you know, you want to dose less and you don't necessarily want to mess with your nutrients at all, potentially a smaller dose of a, a, amino a specific amino acid complex could be the route. Um, that'd be a fascinating series of things to talk about and explore. Um, and I wish I was more familiar with how different organisms absorbed in amino, amino acids directly, yep. but it's still something I'm trying to dig into. I know abalone larvae, that was a big secret when they were trying to breed those, they don't eat, they just suck up, uh, they just suck up nutrients in the water potentially other organisms when, too.
0: When would you suggest not dosing live phyto to a reef tank when there's certain things going on? Let's say um, you've got cyano in the tank. Should you um, hold off on dosing phyto? Let's say you've got dinos in the tank. Should you be holding off on dosing phyto? Or, or will dosing phyto you know, help those types of uh, situations?
1: I think if it's if it's coming to something that that you, you know the dinoflagellate is thriving in a nutrient-poor environment... Nanochloropsis, tetrasomus, your green phytos that stick around a little longer, there's an argument for adding those to the fight. If you know that your dinoflagellates or your cyanobacteria problem at least is somewhat associated with the nutrient rise, phosphates or nitrates, cut out your phyto, address your lighting, address your nutrients, try and bring everything down uh, before you start to uh, try and raise those levels back up again. Um, because, you know, sometimes you can just be, uh, you know, the, by nature, these are not aggressive microalgae species. They are not designed for combat. Um, and if they did, they, they would probably have a lot more associated problems when dosed into healthy tanks. So if you're trying to raise nutrients, um, because the dinoflagellates, uh, you know, they're thriving in a nutrient-poor environment. You're like, oh, my nitrate, I'm bottomed out and they're still here. I, I would probably, it would be worth a shot for the greens. Otherwise, I'd keep them out of the fight until you got those nutrients under gotcha. control.
0: Um, another question from Andy. Uh, do we know if pelagic bacteria feed on any species of phyto or are the bacteria too small?
1: Uh, it's a fantastic question. So <clears throat> all the, uh, with the exception of some algae in that lab I talked about, all algae don't exist in isolation. They're all like a coral reef in them themselves. They got a bunch of bacteria all on them. And we're still trying to figure out what a lot of that bacteria does. And a lot of the toughening up process, when I talk about that, like algae getting accustomed to your conditions is your environmental conditions, but it's also whatever bacteria is in your house that comes off of you, that comes off your furniture, your, your, your aquarium secretes tons of bacteria in the air all the time that has to groove with that culture wise. Um, so yeah, there are some bacteria that can help algae. They can be like, hey, here's like a bunch of B vitamins. <laughs> We know you, you need that, here you go. It's like giving them like a little Red Bull. It's like, so they're really beneficial ones, uh, Roseobacter. Um, uh, there are also ones like Vibrio that we know uh, will get in and be like, hey, there's a bunch of chocolate chip cookies here. Let's, let's wreck the place. <laughs> and uh, the more clumpy an algae culture is, if an algae culture clumps too much, it'll just crash altogether. But if it's competent and it's healthy and it's just a little bit of potentially some bacteria that got in there and you know it happens, especially when you have a jug of, of algae going, there's no way to completely control that airflow. Even if you have an air filter, the air filter gets clogged dirty and then you're dosing it through that. So if there's a healthy algae culture and there's a little bit of invaders coming in, they'll actually clump a little bit and they'll just suffocate them, just the same way that kind of our white blood cells will. So, yeah, there are bacteria that can help algae, and there are algae there are bacteria that can consume it and kill it directly. And even more fascinatingly, uh, this is never consistent. There's a wonderful paper called the Jekyll and Hyde effect of of uh of uh, uh, uh Phaeobacter gallien gallian, And it's this diatom um, that lives with the Phaeobacter. The bacteria Phaeobacter lives on the diatom and it's the, got the 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 Dr. Jekyll state, where it's like, hey, here's the B vitamins, here you go. Like, I'm your buddy and the algae's (laughs) growing and it's like, this is awesome, this is out in the pelagic environment. So like, I'm blooming, this is great. And all of a sudden they get to stationary growth where again, oh, things are getting crowded all of a sudden. And then Mr. Hyde shows up and the same bacteria that was helping that algae grow, Decides, I'm gonna start killing you, and then just start <laughs> treating antibiotics and feeding off the algae. So there are these these natural boom and bust cycle that occur with the same bacteria and algae that's completely dictated by how either's doing. In the same way that a coral can bleach its zooxanthellae, reacquire it, or just be completely stable and beautiful and happy.
0: Um, talking about bacteria, and and again from my conversation with Kevin, I I, I don't believe you guys dose bacteria to your systems at TSA, or is, is that uh, not totally correct?
1: We have, um, we've been experimenting with some heterotrophic bacteria. I, uh, I would be remiss if I mentioned a specific name because Corey's buying that project and I don't necessarily remember, but, um, we do a lot of work with, uh, BenePets feeding and a lot of, uh, one thing I do like about the BenePets formulations is that they have a lot of, uh, heterotrophic bacteria in them. So specifically lactobacillus. It's like a bacteria that it doesn't consume ammonia or nitrate like a biofilter, um, and it doesn't photosynthesize like an algae, but it consumes carbon. So it's a sludge eater, essentially. So um, we do uh, we do dose Benipets as part of our coral food. And in that way, we have that population of heterotrophic bacteria that are eating leftover organics and carbons. And then uh, they can either be consumed or again, picked up in that skimmer.
0: Are you guys looking down the road or kicking the tires on potentially culturing your own bacteria?
1: Um, Right now, we mainly just sell our pre-season biomedia. We identify tanks that are producing well, that have no issues, and we sell the biomedia out of those because that has the actual functional microbiome of of bacteria that are acting, playing ball and succeeding with fish invertebrates, corals and the infinite other factors that are just uh, relatively difficult um, to apply. Not to say that there aren't very good probiotic bacteria species out there, but it's simply outside of our realm of R&D and especially the the, uh, current constraints we have space-wise. There's lots of projects uh, that we're very eager to get off the ground and they're already bulging out of the building (laughs) space-wise. But unfortunately, our own specific cultured bacteria uh, is not presently in the cards. Um, I do love working with uh, Kenneth Winninger yeah. uh, at Hydrospace. Um, I write a lot of his articles, and I've been studying uh, his purple non-sulfur bacteria for quite some time. And that whole class of microbes, I think, has wonderful applications kind of uh you know they operate in the sludge where there's no oxygen and then algae's operating out in the light where there's uh, lots of oxygen so I, I think there's wonderful avenues for yeah for,
0: yeah for i had, i had uh, kenneth on a few weeks ago and we uh, we talked at length about oh, that true. stuff and uh, yeah I, I was just kind of curious because uh, i was wondering whether you guys were uh you know potentially thinking about incorporating some of their uh stuff
1: Oh, I, I'd love to. I got to have a conversation with the, with the bosses about that because I, I the, 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 the hyperspace stuff, besides the fact that 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 Kenneth is awesome, that just the approach where it's like, we are going to, again, identify organisms that have a lot of literature behind them and then just one species per culture. So if someone's like, okay, what do I have? Okay, it's this under the microscope. And if they look up what that is, there's people from Sri Lanka, people from Japan that have like, I've done this with this thing and it did this. So there's just all... And then now we have the, the potential to take all that knowledge and then put it in reef tanks with all these organisms that these scientists would never be able to, to, to do because they would have to get replicates of everything and have it controlled. And I love this stream of, of, of science into the, into the chaos of yeah. reef keeping because so much stuff that can be learned when you don't have to operate and all the right tape. <laughs>
0: uh, let me tell you, man, the hobby has changed a lot. It, there's been uh, there's been a lot of um, innovations and and that, things are definitely more complicated uh, these days than they were back in the uh, the day when I started reef keeping. But I, I don't know, man. It makes it all very interesting. You know, you just gotta be able to um, sift through all the different uh, information, all the different um, you know options that are out there, and, and make some smart choices, which can be kind of tough at times. There's a lot of there's a lot of different things out. there. There's a lot of different ways to uh, to keep a reef tank. Um, Speaking of Canon's uh, uh, products, there's a question from uh, Reef with Me. If we are dosing green phyto, should we continue to dose PNS Pro uh, Bio? Uh, how do they interact with each other?
1: Any idea on that one? Um, so I'm actually very excited. I was kind of run some interaction experiments where I was um, considering even dosing small amounts of the Pseudorodomonas into my algae cultures to see what the effect would be. But um, on surface, um, besides the very minimal chance of competition, certainly no chance of uh, the the bacteria itself consuming the algae. It's not really the way it operates. But um, because of the nature of Ken's bacteria, it operates in the sectors where the algae just can't survive, mainly where there's no oxygen, uh, where there's minimal light versus uh, lots of light. And uh, where there's minimal flow and there's lots of organics. The algae operates a little bit better. It's designed for the open water column and the the surface of of rock work.
0: Gotcha. Um, Mark Hibbert is asking, any pro tips to avoid
1: crashing a phytoculture? Ooh, uh, yes. I was just talking about this the other day. Don't do what a lot of oyster farmers do. Don't build your hatchery on the water. Don't use raw (laughs) (laughs) seawater. You cannot filter seawater. You can't bleach it. You can't nuke it. You can't ozone it. You can't put it through a reverse tangential filter without there at least being some bits of the bacteria that used to work in there. And those bits can really screw your culture up um, in subtle ways that build up over time. Uh, so if I had one tip, it's to control your water. Reef industry has been great to me because it's been given me the opportunity to work with RO water mixed with salt. Mm. That's never... Touched a wild ecosystem that has been game changing. Keep your water clean and it will be kind don't, to you. So don't use
0: established st- tank water to create a culture. No.
1: Yes. Don't do that. Yes. It will not, it will, you're going to grow. They call it the Wells Glancy technique. It's when you just grow whatever grows. <laughs> <laughs> they used to do it. It's a good way, but like, no, we're, we're good now.
0: Um, Terasa, yeah, you, got got suggest- you got a lot of pets running around in there, huh?
1: I know they're all <laughs> they're all getting they're neat. all getting pissed off I guess or I don't know, it's my rescue uh, cat I'm gonna have to yeah um he's fine he's just complaining because he didn't get well he's like yeah you know, the, the cat's
0: yet. not sitting in your lap but like the dog is so maybe you gotta like uh, you know, he's jealous
1: oh they're 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 terrible <laughs> they're terrible <laughs> like children stop um I'm so sorry so, I lost so I pro lost tips friends. in
0: terms of uh you know not, oh, yes. not crashing <laughs> cultures
1: Yes. um, Don't go super intense with the light. Shop lights that you get at the hardware store go a long way. Anything 6,500 Kelvin, something that's mainly white but peaks in the blue spectrum, very kind. You want to start uh, many algae cultures just like coral. Start them off less light, get them strong, and then when you know what you're dealing with, goose it when you want. But these coral lights are way too strong for uh, the culture volume that you're likely going to be dealing with. Um, another piece of advice is keep it sterile. I know that comes with the water, but just because you sterily mixed water, that vat, that that whatever you mixed it in, not sterile. The bucket you poured it in, not sterile. Your hands that you touched with, not sterile. Think of every single surface as as, as the capacity to wreck the whole ship. And if you have that level of caution, and you give your algae a chance, they will fight back whatever slips through the cracks and stuff will always slip through the cracks.
0: Yeah, What um, what is the best thing to sterilize your uh, containers with and your syringes and all that
1: sort of thing? Would you just say hydrogen peroxide? Um, I try and stay away from hydrogen peroxide because a lot of bacteria can actually play ball in it just fine, mm-hmm. same thing with alcohol, uh, though I do use it to sterilize, uh, I use alcohol to kind of clean off things that might have other algae cells on it, but bacteria, uh, alcohol doesn't do much. Yeast, for a good example, loves alcohol, doesn't mind it. Um, so I, for smaller vessels, like a flask that I wanna keep clean, I'll boil that water with like a cheap electric kettle. And you know, heat and pressure is always a great way to go. So a pressure cooker, stove top pressure cooker, great way to go. Boiling water, great way to go. Obviously for larger cultures, um, you can't necessarily just sterilize the entire <laughs> culture that way. <laughs> Um, so I like to fill my vessels up with a little bit of bleach, um, just bleach, not splashless, not scented, nothing with anything else. And then, uh, sodium thiosulfate. So you're essentially nuking every single square inch that the water touches and then uh, using sodium thiosulfate to neutralize that out. Um, those two are the most consistent ways I have found using heat and pressure. And then, uh, when that's not possible at scale, uh, bleach and de-bleach, everything else I've found has been, um, difficult in its consistency you know we uh, one of the wonderful things we did at that algae trials they give us a bunch of algae cultures like like media that we made and then we sterilize them in a bunch of different ways boil water put them in a microwave you know do nothing and uh, you'd be surprised at which uh, well yeah it's the bleach and de bleach that works best. kind of the best in the heat sure yeah
0: what about um, uh, fertilizers right you need to uh, you need to add some fertilizer to a phytoculture to, to get get uh... Get, get, give it some help in terms of growing and multiplying and all that stuff what uh,
1: what fertilizer do you guys recommend so the gillard's formula so there was a very smart guy that worked at the milford lab he ended up he trained the guy that now runs the lab gary Wickfors, um robert gillard he was uh really good he and him and a bunch of other guys uh, like Provo soil like they invented their own formulas of seawater when they were first figuring all this stuff out because they wanted to raise shellfish larvae at the time so Gillard's formula refers to a very specific formulation of fertilizer that comes in two parts There's one that has all the metals has all the like the the, the the gold and the copper and all the like very very small amounts and there's one that has all of the vitamins and the sodium nitrate and the phosphate so i recommend anything that says Gillard's formula that comes from a, a reputable producer and distributor so for instance i go with fritz that's what i go it's cheap it's effective, it's what I used, it's available on Amazon, it's available, uh, it's what I used when I was doing it for oyster culture. Um, it's Gillard's formula. You look in the back, there it is, all the percentages. And uh, you know, I know I can get that at a relatively decent price and then I can keep that sterile. Um, so yeah, um, there's a couple other algae formulations out there. Some of them work a little bit better or not for different organisms, but Gillard's I recommend for the microalgae I've referenced uh, this talk across the board. Um, as opposed to some of the other formulations, and then that's available through a variety of different producers. But I go through Fritz because it's convenient gotcha. and it's, well, it's it works for me. Um,
0: Blue Reef has a question about phyto and sponges. Feeding phyto, will it feed those nuisance gray sponges? So I guess um, does can phyto benefit?
1: Um, you know, some
0: some organisms that you don't want to grow.
1: Uh, it could potentially. It could, anything that's filter feeding could potentially benefit from it. Um, the sponges, uh, I know which ones you're referring to. We, I don't know specifically if they can consume phytoplankton. I would love to look that up. I'm actually working on a, a very generalized sponge article at the moment, but it's hard to research those things. Um, but the trend I'm finding is that there are many sponges that do eat phyto, but a much wider variety eat, uh, smaller cells than even that. So they're bacteria feeders. Um, so potentially, um, you know, not dosing phyto isn't going to control or increase potentially your 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 sponge problem as much as removing whatever big pile of sludge is is probably feeding them a constant bouquet of of bacteria. Um, so yes, 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 and no. Gotcha. They eat a lot of bacteria. Most taxa sponges. I'm sure there's some tax of sponge that eats more phytoplankton than bacteria. But
0: um, another question from um, Bob Purcell. Have you experimented? This is getting back to. Uh, um sanitizing have you experimented with any of the home brewing sanitizers or do you need to be more sterile than that
1: oh that's a that's a that's a good oh uh, you do need to be a little bit more sterile than that though certainly if you're comfortable with your culture you know you can if you get comfortable and it works for you it works for you but for the most part i use uh brewer's soap to get rid of the roughage at first that's a good step i missed it's like pbw five star just a, a very Biologically friendly, non-toxic, non-caustic soap. You can actually just eat it, and you get all the roughage out that way. Um, but it certainly doesn't help with sterilizing. In fact, any particles of that soap left behind are like a mountain valley of bacteria. Um, so I only select it because it's non-caustic, and I can make sure I get all of it rinsed right out.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, you know, I've um, I've done uh, live fight on myself, and uh, you got to really definitely be careful, man. I mean, there's like you said, there's pretty much like a, a lot of different points. Where uh, you can contaminate the uh, the culture, and and I, and I and I did it for a while, and I only um, screwed up once. I don't, I'm not exactly sure how it happened in terms of the uh, contamination, yeah. but the uh, the sign I know for um, for the uh, the green phyto, it turns yellow, right?
1: Then then you know it's been contaminated. Yeah, thing like a change, a dramatic change of color is never a good never sign. never a good sign. You know, some, yeah, the gold will start off kind of yellow and then turn to dark dark chocolate. But uh, to have dark chocolate turn to yellow would be very, very bad. The opposite direction is never... Is there bad.
0: anything you can do to save a culture that's starting to nope. turn bad? Once it starts turning bad, then it's done. It's cooked.
1: It's usually not, it's not worth, worth it. it. It's usually... It's very... Like, by the time you can physically see it, something profound has has changed. Like, now, there's a difference between having it be unusable. You can still harvest that biomass and use it if it's not contaminated with something that you know is a threat. You know, if it doesn't reek... Or it doesn't, you know, if, if you don't see, like, uh, you know, if it's, let's say, just thinning out a little bit, like maybe it's running out of resources, or maybe there's a little bacteria that's starting to take over, that's still perfectly usable. You just don't want to let it run for another couple of days and then lose all of your uh, time and investment. Um, but for the most part, a culture that has, it has lost the fight, and by the time you notice it, it's lost. So that's a lot of the practice here, getting replicates up. And knowing when to just kill one replicate and start over so that you kind of have a, you know, for instance, a lot of what I do at you know, Top Shop, I show up Monday and I critique. I'm like, you die, you die, you die, you die. Like, you were going to dump. We're going to feed you to Belafonte. We're going to feed you to Slim Jim. <laughs> like, you die, you die. Um, usually that's a, that's, that would be a bad day. It's just not that many dies, but <laughs> you, you're perfect. You're getting
0: bottled. How, um, so, are there certain times of the year that you guys just will not ship uh, live Fido to uh, to customers? I mean, does temperature
1: come into play in terms of? Um... Uh, it certainly does. But um, we have the luxury of having incredible packing staff. Uh, Chris and Anthony, I mean, they can get coral acros alive uh, during these heat waves. And, uh, you know, obviously during some of the dramatic heat waves, if there's any chance that the package is going to be, you know, less than overnight, it ain't happening, right. especially in right. the heat. Um, but yeah, we use cold packs and heat packs. I mean, they do incredibly strategically. And uh, we've we knock on wood, with the exception of when our AC uh, went out uh, for a couple of weeks, maybe like two weeks. Um, we uh, we haven't had any issues whatsoever with temperature. Um, certainly not once the bottles are out the door. Gotcha. Um, I'll, yeah, I'll sit in a warehouse or something. For, uh- Two days. That'll do. At
0: the beginning of the stream, you you uh, we briefly talked about uh, rotifers. That's a um, a type of zooplankton, right? Um, yes. So, what what is the general difference between the zooplankton versus the uh, the phytoplankton?
1: So the name is just just in the name. Phyto just means that it's photosynthesizing. So it could actually be, uh, yeah, it could be anything. As long as it's photosynthesizing, it's the phytoplankton, just a term of convenience. If it's eating and killing and not photosynthesizing, it's zooplankton. It's an animal. It's basically, plants or animals swimming around in the water column. So a rotifer is just um, another set, another term of convenience for a huge other set of organisms that are bigger than ciliates, but they're smaller than copepods. Copepod's pod's easy. It's just a tiny lobster. It's a crustacean. <laughs> it's a different type of crustacean and they're just a tiny little lobster, a little microscopic lobster, crab, shrimp. Um, but a rotifer is its own beast altogether. So specifically, we grow Branchionis plicatilis, which is a pelagic, estu- uh, not a pelagic, an estuarine rotifer. And um, it's been one that's been uh, classically used to rear fish and aquaculture uh, all kinds of invertebrate and other larvae. Um, And also, it's the perfect size for uh, zooplankton feeding corals. Anything that's uh, a little bit too, uh, anything that can't feed on something as small as a phytoplankton, but anything bigger than that is a little bit of a challenge. The rotifer is the perfect little intermittent step.
0: What what Um, corals would benefit the most in a reef tank from uh, rotifers?
1: Things that are, like, not, like, if I had to point to something, anything that's non-photosynthetic, specifically, that's what you, that's when you're entering the need when it comes to feeding things like rotifers, when you need to have predictable zooplankton hitting that tank. Things like gorgonians and the like that are actively feeding are the things that are going to benefit the most. Things like acros and, and the like, they're also going to benefit to a degree, but it's the things that have no capacity to photosynthesize that will benefit directly from routine rotifer dosing. That's when you're gonna get the most bang on your buck. Because there's still rotifers in your tank, you gotta keep in mind. They may not be uh, Branchiomas plicatilis, but there's all kinds of other ones. And we could, we could probably fill up a library taking pictures of them under the microscope. And all these will boom in population if there's routine phytodosing. So, necessarily adding zooplankton in continuous swaths isn't strictly recommended unless there's something you're directly feeding. Like if you got a mandarin or a gorgonian or something that is constantly eating something that's you know, actual zooplankton, or you run interceptor in your tank strategically, and you need to recoup all those uh, those crustaceans that got lost.
0: Well, I'm, you know, it, I'm I'm interested in terms of the uh, the the coral food versus the uh, the phytoplankton and, and the rotifers and all that stuff. Um, you guys do feed uh, specific coral food, don't you? In terms of the uh, the systems.
1: Well, yeah, we make our own custom formulation where it's a, it's a mixture of uh, our own phyto. Um, variety of different powdered feeds, uh, variety of different uh, reed mariculture products, such as their roe, their oyster gonad tissue, basically trying to get as much of a diverse, um, multi-particle-sized uh, deliverance as possible. So everything from amino acids, all the way up to larger granules of uh, powdered foods, reefroids, benepets, and then potentially even, um, you know, so some of the other bigger, bigger food particles that we have in there. Sometimes we toss in a very small amount of pellets.
0: And and um, is that all broadcast fed, or do you guys do some uh, target feeding with, with with some of
1: that uh, feed? What I described is strictly broadcast fed for the most part. Uh, target feeding is done with pellets, and then specifically uh, well, a myriad of other feed formulations based on what we're feeding. So the meat corals themselves are obviously they're good. you know if we're do, dealing with something like that, yeah. we're low particle size. And then you know, for doing mushrooms or something else, we're you know we're going to be going a little bit smaller and the like, and and something that's going to be settling a little bit more than being suspended. So there's a bunch of leeway with the different taxa. And then uh, unfortunately, I don't do the target feeding myself, but Evan would be a great person to be talking talking to about that.
0: So uh, Taras, man, dude, you you guys have a lot going on there in terms of uh, just uh, the uh, the raising of all the different live feeds and 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 the. Uh... The, uh, the the aquaculture uh, system, it's a, it's a complex situation, but obviously you guys are doing something right. So um,
1: I wouldn't be – we wouldn't – if it weren't the fact that we were so good at working as a team, I, I – we had like seven people working in the frag room like today and three people working construction. I was harvesting copepods. I think another – Three people were doing frags. It's a mirror. Like we are just morale is always high. We're cranking out product, and uh, I don't know. I've I've never had a job where people are actually excited to uh, to hear about what I'm up to, and then uh, be excited to do whatever I can. They can to you know help me, help them, and then help help help, help me. So
0: no, it's very it's cool. Awesome. You guys, uh, top top notch uh, operation. Intrinsic Reef. Thank you so much for that uh, super chat. Comments. Uh, such a passionate, informative talk. Thank you both. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. So, uh, man, what did we miss? What uh, did we did we uh, cover all the bases here? Anything else uh, we, we uh, might have left out?
1: Um, pretty much. I mean, the the other half of my uh, my job at Top Shelf is uh, kind of like pseudo R and D. I mean, I think my favorite part of the reef aquarium industry is uh, digging through the detritus buckets, mm. you know, the worms, the starfish, the the, the, oh my God, the sea cucumbers, the things that are born in these tanks. You are a critter guy. Oh, I love critters, (laughs) big and small. Oh, so my favorite part has been like, well, that's actually valuable. Like, and then be like, well, why do we want to sell brittle stars? I'm like, well, if I'm in the middle of Wisconsin and I got a three hour drive to LFS, how nice would it be to be like, I got, I want six brittle stars and three stomatellas, and I can, I can have a hundred. It'd be so nice. I don't have to even make that drive. So then I, you know, my favorite part is like a few of my tanks that we have are just bins that I kind of store to the side. I blast them with blue light and run them with the aeration. Very simple. They're kind of like little ponds. And I call them the Island of Mystic Toys. <laughs> and All of the all the different critters that don't have a home go there. And then uh, I've learned so much from those bins alone. I just, I, I had to do a shout out to the bins.
0: <laughs> yeah. You don't want to like ignore the bins.
1: Well, the bin. <laughs>
0: dreams are born in the bins. Go. There you go, man. So, um. All right, Tross, man. Listen, I appreciate you uh, taking the time to be on the live stream. How um, so? They could they, they could basically uh, find the uh, the live feeds if they want to order through you guys at the uh, on the website. They could purchase right on the website, topshelfaquatics.com? dot com. Yes. Gotcha. And uh, you guys also uh, you have a lot of informative stuff on YouTube and. And uh, right, you, you've got your own little uh, show going on there, a little mini series. I,
1: I have my own little blurb. Yeah. yeah, it's it's been fun. Whatever I'm kind of feeling like talking about, and then we're gonna we're gonna start doing some more targeted series on uh, on specific aspects of reef keeping. So, cool.
0: all right, folks, we'll definitely yeah. uh, we'll all uh, be tuning in there, Taras.
1: Well, thank you. It was an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having yeah, me yeah, on. Yeah, I appreciate
0: it. And um, so thanks to Ross for being on today's live stream. I also want to thank both Volkeries of Plan and Ecotech Marine for sponsoring the live stream. And also thank all you folks out there that tuned in to watch. A big thank you to Paul, the moderator, who's also the president of Boston Reefers Society. Please join and support your local reefing clubs. They are so important to this hobby. Also want to let you know that all episodes of Wrap on the Reef Bum are available as podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts stitcher and amazon my next wrap reef bum live stream will be next tuesday october 31st halloween with mark levinson from milo's reef so that should be another great show and if you want to check out the full upcoming schedule of guests visit reefbum.com under the youtube section november 14th we're gonna have a big um tribute to jake adams so please um make a note of that one in your calendar it will be a uh, a great live stream tribute to jake so uh, until then Be safe, be well, and we'll see you next time.